God, we do thank you for beautiful weather and a break in the heat. And we thank you for an opportunity to get together and look at your word. I pray that you would illuminate your word to us through your spirit. And God, I, like I typically ask, would ask again that this wouldn't merely be an exercise of our minds, but that we would conform our hearts and our lives to your word. Um, God, your teaching in scripture is not meant to be strictly informational. It's meant to be transformational. And so I pray that as we look at Christ and his life and his teachings, that it would inform the way that we live our own lives, that we would go and do according to what your word tells us. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we got, I think we got all the way through like verse seven or eight, somewhere in there, but let's reread. We're in Mark chapter seven. Let me reread one through 12 and then we'll just kind of refresh the main idea and, and keep moving. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. All right, we're in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. So just as a refresher here, um, the indulgence of the flesh is centered in the heart. Okay, we have to accept the fact that the Bible teaches that the actions flow from the heart. And if you change the heart, then you change a person. That's, That's what the Bible is inviting people to step into, is a transformed heart. Um... And external forces that might change you are really powerless to do this work, okay? I mean, you can form new habits and you can engage in new behaviors and those things might be good, right? I mean, if you're, I don't know, you don't, uh, if you have bad health and you sit around all day and you're overweight and you just eat crummy food and you change your habits and you start working out and eating better, that's a good thing, that's good for you. But things like that are not going to ultimately transform your heart, okay? Um, yeah, so a very, a very important Christian principle is at work here. And we talked about this a little bit 
last week that the heart will, in order to um, get its way, it will drift towards either license or legalism. Um, but an unconverted, or I'm sorry, a converted heart doesn't need license or legalism because it keeps the commands of God from this place of being transformed. It comes willingly through the Spirit's power, okay? So just a quick refresh. License is this idea that you can do whatever you want. Legalism is this idea that you must add to the commands of God in order to stay in, cons in the constraints of what God has commanded. But what Scripture teaches is that when your heart is changed, you will do the commands of God by the power of the Holy Spirit because that's now the direction your heart is oriented. Okay? Can I balance it? Yeah. So if, I, if I'm sitting here and thinking, you know what, I don't really want to do this thing, should I assume that I'm not saved or then, and then just do it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, if somebody who comes to me says, I don't really want to do this thing, in, in, in other words, I don't want to do what the Bible commands in this area. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, well, I'm saying that you're torn or something. Yeah, so like, you know, you really want to do this, but you're not going to do it because, one, you know, I might say because I, I love Christ, but I still want to do the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost like saying, well, then my heart's not right. And I'm not saved. And yeah, let me try and illustrate. And, and I would say maybe you should, right? I mean, the Bible says test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So maybe you should. You should evaluate. Like, do I actually want to do the things that Jesus commands? Do I believe that the things that Jesus commands are ultimately good? I think, I think pastors and churches are way too quick to tell people, yeah, you're in the faith if you just believe in Jesus. Um, I don't, I'm not saying we should stop saying those kinds of things. I'm only saying that we need to help people understand that to really be in the faith means that you trust that what Jesus commands on any given subject is the best way to go about things. But have I used my illustration of like dog poop? I, I think it's, I mean, it's silly, but I like this illustration. Have I talked about this before? Okay. Has anybody, raise your hand if you've ever been walking down the street in a park or on the sidewalk and you've seen a dog poo on the ground and you've thought, I should eat that. Nobody has ever had that thought, right? Or if you have, then we would check you into an institution to help you reform your, your thinking. And the reason is because it's cruddy, right? I mean, it's, it's awful. We are, I think we are in the process as believers of learning to feel that way about sin, okay? Now, if somebody had a habit of eating dog poop, we would say, you should stop doing that. That's really unhealthy. But ultimately, God is moving us to the place where if, if we equate, if we go with my illustration here, dog poop is equivalent to sin. God is moving us to the place where you could put that in front of us and we would never choose to eat it because we've got something better. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, so application though. Say I, um, I meet a guy that's, that's a Christian, watching pornography, says he wants to stop, but he still does it. Is the call, you're not saved? Well, I think what I'm doing that. If he says he wants to stop, then I, then, then I think the response is, how can we help you? Right? You need some help. What's, what's it going to take for you to stop? You recognize that eating this dog crap is really bad for you. So what can we do to change your diet, right? How can I come alongside of you and help you in that? And I think there's lots of things that we could say, you know, if you need to, get rid of the smartphone. Cut off the internet. Like, people live for thousands of years without internet. You can do it too. Um, you know, uh, 
yeah, let's memorize some scripture that will convict you on that. Let's put together a plan for a more rigorous prayer life where you can be petitioning the Holy Spirit for help in that. Let's make sure that we've got guys in your life who can ask you accountability. Let's maybe go to your wife and confess that sin so that she too can hold you accountable for that, right? So there's lots of things that we can do that can help with that. If he says, I don't want to, that's the point where I would say as a pastor, well, then I have no proof. I have no reason to believe that you're actually a Christian if you don't even want to. Does that make sense? But I guess I'm so black and white that I keep hearing you. What I hear it is your heart's going to do what you want. And if, you, if your heart wants to watch people, then you don't have a training start. You know what I'm saying? And I, that's what I would say. Is that to you disagree with that or that's too black and white? No, I'm just saying if that's the case, then I don't need to try to help them. I need to get them. They're not saved is the way the approach I should go. The fact that you want to watch pornography, even though you're saying you don't, the fact that you do means you do. And you could tell me you don't all the time. You're doing it. Like, you, want, you do what you want to do. Well... I mean, so like you go to a passage like Romans 7, I don't think Romans 7 is about somebody somebody who is, uh, I think Paul's dealing with the struggle with the flesh even after life in Christ, okay? There's some debate, Romans 7 says, I don't understand the things that I do, the things that I want to do, I don't do, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. And I think he's dealing just with the indwelling remaining sin. So... I think you can press a person where they get to the point where they're like, yes, I keep doing this thing, but I hate it and I don't want to do it anymore. And at that point, it's like, okay, then let's put together a plan to to help you in that area. But you can also press people to the point where, I mean, I've done this with people where, you know, they keep saying, no, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, but I want this sin in my life. I want this sin in my life. And if you keep pressing, eventually... In my experience, I've got probably a half dozen of these where they say, basically, screw you, I want to keep doing this, and they get up and they leave. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm still talking around what you're asking. Kind of because what, I'm, what, I, what I hear is like, the behavior's gonna come if there's a changed heart. Stop trying to, uh, uh, to fix behavior is kind of the idea where the, the root is the, the heart issue. Now I'm saying, okay, now I got a guy that says there's a, heart change but the behavior is still struggling over and over and over for, for decades and I'm saying what is what is the issue here like got it okay do I, do I deal with the issue do I deal with the, the action or do I deal with I'm not saying so I guess what I'm saying is uh, I would say both but let me clarify first behavior cannot work backwards to change the heart but a changed heart can work to change behavior and therefore with a changed heart we should expect that we can also work on the behavior. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to avoid is the view of the Pharisees, which says my outside can be really clean and my inside can be awful and I'm okay before God. That's not the way that it works. And Christianity is not a plan for behavior modification. It is good news that Christ has saved you and changed you and therefore you can walk in obedience to his commands. But I would say to to somebody who's like, yeah, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I've, I continue to have this sin in my life, the same today as it was then, or maybe worse. I would say I'm not sure that really the heart has been changed. So are they self-deceived then at that point? Would you say, look, for 20 years you've been self-deceived because ultimately you want sin over Christ. You're not making the decision to actually change. Yeah, I would say you that. You have the power to do it, but you're not doing it. I would say that. And I might begin by saying to them, but look, let's, let's, Let's try and work on the behavior and let's see how that goes. And maybe in time, just your your immaturity will grow into maturity. 
in, um, in, in all other things they're doing very well and all other things they are on board and, and with Christ but this one thing seems to have a hold on them are you are you going to say that because of this one thing that they may not Maybe, maybe let me try it another, try and say it another way. I mean, I'm going to take each of these on a case-by-case basis, so it's difficult to, to spell out some formula for this. But, um, shoot, what was I going to say that was looking at it in a different way? Um, let me put it, yeah, this is the way I was going to put it, is I think tragically the church in America has communicated to people that the gospel is this thing that you believe that gets you into heaven and that's it and in reality the gospel is that the kingdom of god comes to you and makes you into the kind of person that can live in the kingdom of god um i heard somebody say one time that uh in heaven there's no place to sneak off for a quick sin Right? How uncomfortable does that make you? Or, or another way to put it is, if I could give you a pill right now that would make it so you could never lie again, would you take that pill? Right? How many people would be like, eh, no, you know? Because, yeah, because we think that lying is a very helpful, convenient thing at some times, right? Um, so, I guess what I'm pushing towards, and I'm, my mind is going all over the place at this point, is helping people understand that Jesus wants to make you able to live comfortably in his kingdom, where his will is done. And that's what you should also desire, both in the intentions of your heart and also in the actions of your life. Is that helpful at all, or did that make it worse? Yeah. I think there's we have to have it's almost the balance here. We have you know, salvation, your will, and God's will. But with the, with the Christian walk, I mean, because I mean, you quoted a verse a ways ago. If you have not resisted sin to the point of bloodshed, have you? If your right hand cause, you know, causes you to sin, like, the, the steps a Christian is asked to take is not just rest in God and He'll do the work. It is walk in the Spirit. You have it. You have the flesh. You have the Spirit. You need to make a conscious decision every yeah. day to walk in the flesh, and I just don't want to miss that. I mean, walk in the spirit. Yeah. yeah. I, in this instance, I'm dealing with the legalism that is doing that without the power, right? But I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, the Christian life is through the power of the Spirit, by grace, you can do what the Bible commands you to do, and therefore you must do that, right? Um, but, I, but I also want to avoid this idea that apart from grace and apart from the Spirit, you can do everything that the Bible commands you. Now, you can do some good things. You can put in practice a lot of the things that the Bible says, but not ultimately in a way that pleases God or really um, prepares you for his kingdom. Okay. Good discussion. Thank you. Uh, in verses 9 through 13, I think in some ways, Jesus almost sounds impressed by the ability of the human heart to devise strategies for slipping out from under the regulations that God has given to uh, us. I mean, 
Look at the way he says this. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Um, did I already mention this? That seems like a little bit of sarcasm, doesn't it? Very much. <laughs> right? So Jesus uh, can, can engage in a bit of sarcasm. Uh, okay, so the illustration that Jesus then gives is this practice of uh, what, what, the, what the Jews would do. So, you know, the, the, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. And so uh, the Jews thought that that was very important. You should honor your father, father and mother. But the religious leaders created this tradition that allowed them to dedicate their finances, their resources to the temple, and that would exempt them from taking care of their parents. We have to understand how different, how culturally different things are. So today, the way it works is you have kids and you take care of your kids, and then you grow up and social security takes care of you. But through most of human history, the plan was you have kids and you take care of them, and then when you get old, your kids take care of you. Okay? And, and so this was part of the obligation to honor your father that's, and mother. That still exists in, in, in the rest of the world. Yeah, in most like, other third world countries or, or just other countries that don't have these social welfare programs that we have. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in our, where I came from, it's still like your kid, your children will take care of you when you get home. Yeah. And uh, it actually makes a lot of sense because if you, you know, through most of human history, people would have... I mean, four kids would have been a small family, right? You might have six or eight or ten kids. And so then the burden for them to take care of you is divided among them, at least in theory. Um, but uh, Corbin here is the transliteration of a Hebrew term. And it, it, it refers to a gift given to God, right? So you would take your money and you would pronounce it Corbin, give it to God, and then... Because of that portion given to God, then you didn't have to <coughs> utilize it in caring for your parents. Why would somebody even do that? Is it just pure spite for your parents? Why do you think that this even became a tradition? What's that? Yeah, right? You look really, really godly, right? People might say, well, how come your parents aren't living with you? How come you're not taking care of them? Oh, because... I did something very self-sacrificial. I gave my money to God instead, right? Ooh, you're so holy and righteous. Is that the only benefit, or do they still get access to that money during that that period of time that is dedicated to God? I mean, is that their only benefit, is they look good? Uh, yes, as far as I know. And I mean, I guess in some ways, if you think for a second about the... Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan and you have the Levite and the priest and they're on their way to the temple and they see this guy in need but they have much more important things to do with their time right so they can't help this guy um, in some ways you you might add to this the benefit of my busy life serving God now I also don't have to waste it taking care of my aging parents right after the praise of men yes instead yeah looking to be praised by men for that um, yeah, and because, because of vows being um, unalterable, you know, making vows, you know, this was something that once you made this vow, there was no going back. Um, so Jesus is pretty clear here. What honors God, what pleases God is not this gift of money that allows you to sidestep the obligation, but the command that God himself gave. 
right? You don't get to make up what commands you will decide are important and then follow those to the exclusion of the others, okay? And although honoring God by giving a substantial gift of your finances to him is a great thing, if you think it gets you off the hook for the things that God has commanded, right? Because you can't go to a verse that says, and, and you know, God is super pleased when you give 50% of your income to him, right? But they were saying that pleases God even to the point where you can ignore what God has clearly said. It doesn't work like that. When you think about God owns everything anyways, and at some point he says, you know, if I wanted cattle, if I wanted, you know, money, I have everything. I don't need anything that's really ritualistic, but you're missing the point, which is the good Samaritan is to care for people. As much as you do it to the least means you do it to me, and God cares about protecting the widowless, the fatherless, the poor, the needy. Yeah. That's how you give to God, and, and really giving to the temple is, is fruitless compared to taking care of people. Yep. Yep. Amen. Absolutely. You neither love God nor love your neighbor, right? The two, the two great commandments. When you're behaving like this, God is not pleased. And then you've also neglected your, your responsibility to love your neighbor. And what could be ultimately more honoring to God than simply obeying God? Right? It's not more honorable to give your money to the temple and forsake your duty to, your, to honor your father and your mother. And man, just all oh, the ways that we go about justifying our sins, right? Can anybody think of any? I mean, I've, I've come up with a couple. I'd like to create, um, like there's a website that has logical fallacies and it makes up names for all the logical fallacies, which I think is kind of clever. I'd like to make up a, a, like a, a list of all the ways that we go about justifying our sins, right? So here's one, just as an example, and then we can, you guys can toss out ideas. I just call it the negotiator accepting one sin in our life because we don't do another sin in our life, right? I, I should give myself grace in this area over here where I know that I perpetually, habitually sin and don't really care to deal with it because I'm really good at all these other things over here, right? I mean, in some ways, that's what's going on here. I don't have to take care of my mother and father because I gave all my money to God. Anybody else have other ones? I'm only human. I'm only human, right? Nobody's perfect. Yeah, that's another good one, right? I think some people choose. that like God's expectations are for me are too high because I'm just I'm just a human. Yeah, yeah. I think I think some people find a different interpretation of Scripture so that they can make it justify it that way. Yeah, okay, I mean, sure. People twist Scripture all the time for their own selfish needs. Prosperity gospel is a first one to go. Yeah. So, like, yeah, maybe this person would be the twister, right? They twist the word to make their particular issue more acceptable. Oh, God knows my heart. Probably he does know your heart. <laughs> so, so dividing out the motivation from the action to excuse it. Choosing yeah. like a lesser sin over a greater one. Like, at least I'm not doing that. Right. <laughs> Yep, totally. The comparer, the person who compares and says, like, look, it could be worse. I could be this. Yeah. There's an interesting one. My pastor does it. <laughs> there you go. My pastor does it. Nice. Nice. And the pastor can say, well, my congregation does it. So. <laughs> I, I remember the joke of one of the pastors said, you will be surprised when you get to heaven that you will be surprised whose person will be there. 
the person that you don't expect to be there is there and the person you expect is <laughs> yeah. the other way around. I've totally always thought that too. Like I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at who's not there and also who is there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was one I saw a few years ago that was fascinating and I, I don't know that I've seen this a ton, but there was a pastor of a very large church who like a big part of his platform was condemning homosexuality Turns out he was meeting up with men in an airport bathroom. Oh my gosh. Right? So like the hyper condemnation that makes me feel like I do stand against a sin that I'm actually guilty of engaging in secretly. Um, or believing that some sins are really, really awful, just not the ones that we have. Right? So maybe you think that something like Pornography is terrible, but at home you're a psycho rage beast and you just anger everywhere, right? As if that's okay because it's not that one. Or like it's okay to do the sin because it's going to lead to something better. Ooh. Like, you know, fornicating because you're going to marry the person eventually. <laughs> I've had to go back to the Lord and repent on a, an idea that I had a few years ago that the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, that was terrible. That never should have come out of my mouth. Which was like jokingly saying that, and jokingly, half jokingly saying that I wonder if there will be a reward in heaven, like a medal for the person who drew on grace the most by, by you know, having an issue that they, they just repented of a lot, right? And the more I thought about that, the more I'm like, no, because grace is God's power to deal with the sin before it becomes sin, right? When it's still in the moment of temptation, before it gives birth to sin. So I'm trying to remember who I might have said that to that I need to go back and be like, do you remember that thing? Just scratch that. Because that was no good. There's lots of different ways that we do this, right? Uh, I mean, another one is, um, oh, what about this one? Connecting our sins to noble motivations or honorable uses, right? So something like this. Um, well, it's, it's totally okay for me to feel hatred for the abortion doctor because what he does is evil, right? Versus, scripture says, love your enemies and pray for them, right? So even though this sin is bad, it's actually connected to a, a noble motivation and therefore it's excusable in the eyes of God. There are so many ways that we go about doing this, right? Um, I mean, e even Adam and Eve blaming, right? Well, I only do this sin because X, Y, Z, right? Man. That'd be a good list. You really should do that. It'd be kind of kind of funny, huh? Yeah. Come up with clever names for all the <laughs> all the different, Man, you know. But <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's good. The different sin manipulators. All right, First Timothy one five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And if we really understood the price that Jesus paid on the cross and the depth of God's love for us, like if we could really get a glimpse of that, it would just it would just change the way that we think about offending God. And that's not even dealing with, you know, how offensive sin is in his eyes. All right, let's move on. Anybody want the last word on that, that section? 
Well, the theme continues here in verses 14 through 23 as Jesus sort of explains, um, you know, he kind of gives like a teaching about the, the reason for his condemnation here. Okay, so verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach? and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This wasn't in my notes, but as I was reading this, I think it's worth pointing out verse 15 Jesus says there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him um, I want to navigate this carefully but does he really mean nothing yes but there are things you can overdo that can defile you like alcohol well well, I think that the, the way I would deal with this is he does mean nothing, but in the context in which the Jews are thinking about this matter, right? I mean, if somebody came to me and said, look, I don't think pornography is bad because Jesus says there's nothing that can go into me that defiles me, I would say, well, Jesus is literally dealing with this Jewish idea of food laws, unclean food. And within that context, he says nothing. Would but, you? But he was in food, all all food. And later, I mean, I think this is a postscript that he says that Mark inserts, um, you know, that as a result, he made all foods clean. And later we see that he tells Peter all foods are clean. But I think, I mean, yes, it's talking about food, not pornography. Right, right, right. So, so this, this is why, like, we have to think very carefully about the words that Jesus used in the context he uses them. But how right? do pornography go into you? I don't even understand, like, how you get there. Yeah, because it's, it's something that you're consuming, right? It's outside of you, and it's going into oh, you yeah, in that right. way. I, think can, I don't know how anybody would get to that, like, Dude, hearing or anything. I mean, you've not seen people justify their behavior by misinterpreting Scripture in terrible ways? I mean, another verse like this is, to the pure, all things are pure, right? I've had somebody say to me, see, like, I can, I can do these things because I love Jesus. It's like, no, 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 that's not what that verse means. That okay. would be easier to manipulate, and, but obviously, you know, but here it's talking about eating. Yeah, it's yeah, and that's what we need to draw people's attention to, is like, you got to understand what he's saying in the context in which he's saying it. Otherwise, you lead to these conclusions that are wrong. Okay. Yeah, it's, I remember there's still a debate about this in, 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 in other country, you know, the blood from the pig, they're still eating it. But a lot of Christians is like, no, you don't eat the blood because it's it's a life. So I'm kind of like, like yeah, there's a lot of Christians that defending 
that Jesus clean everything. I mean, so they can eat all the. But other Christians would say, no, you cannot eat that kind of food because there is blood on it. Um, that's interesting. I think that that might be grounded in. Leviticus, yeah, I know there isn't a. But then they're like accepting that they can eat pork, yeah, but not the blood. So uh -huh. well, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's a big debate in in where I came from because, um, my we were taught that you cannot really eat the blood because we have, we have a recipe actually in a lot of recipe in the Philippines where it combine the blood, yeah. literally the blood. They just chop it and combine it, and my 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 grandma would said. Don't eat, don't ever, ever eat that food because there is blood on it. So we don't allow that food. Well, I'd have to, I'd have to think about it a little more, but actually what I, what I was thinking of is Genesis 9, right? Where God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is, in, uh, with its life, that is its blood. Yeah. So I'd have to think about it because it's grounded in a different it's not grounded in the Mosaic law. I'm not sure, but I've not thought about it before. Or a goat blood. When his mother fell, he can't eat that either. Right. Yeah, because here there is, almost all Americans don't eat blood, but in the rest of the country, like Mexico and other countries, there is blood in a lot of recipes. Sure. I don't know how you avoid it, really. I mean, there's going to be blood in any animal that you eat, really, no matter. Yeah, it's in Leviticus as well. Still, yeah. three seventeen yeah. portion. Yeah. yeah. The the. I like my steak bloody. So what do they mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like blood pudding. What 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 is important for us to understand is like those things do not corrupt the heart. The heart is corrupt, and that's why it does things. It does what it does. Okay. Maybe maybe you're gonna get to this, but when it, when it says. Um, as he declared all food clean. Are you going to get to that? Or yeah, we are. Okay. Um, Did you, does your Bible go 1517? Um, yes. Okay, good teaching. for the young ones in here. Because I, I mean, I don't know if they're reading Bibles. I have so, to. My, my question what, what, what would you say about <laughs> eating blood as a food? I, I think I would probably land on. Um, I think I would probably land with Mark here and say, like, Jesus declared everything clean. Oh, okay. But I don't know. I do. I probably should think about this a little bit more deeply. But your conscience has to be clear. It's a probably yeah. a Romans thing where, you know, if it's sin to you, don't do it. You don't can't do it. Right. You're yes. violating conscience. But if I, yeah. uh, Gentiles don't know that. When they go home, and, and that's my, one of my favorite men, um, you know, from if, in the country. And if when, when they serve it to me, I said, no, sorry, I cannot do that. And, and they will ask, why? Mm, nah, it's just, I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a born again Christian, and I don't eat blood. <laughs> here's, why, here's why I feel stuck on it. Not because it's in the Levitical law. If it was in the Levitical law, I would say, no big deal. Like, we don't follow the, no. the Levitical law, right? Yeah. The Mosaic law does not apply to us. Um, but because of that verse in Genesis, I'm a little more leery to just straight out say, like, go ahead and feast on blood. And yet, at the same time, because, it, because the point is different. Blood, blood is in Genesis 9 corresponding to life. Whereas the way the Jews are thinking about it here is these foods create uncleanness. Okay. Um, 
So help me with But I've not thought enough about it. What what we what how would you define if they're doing it for the motivation like somebody who's vampiric, they're trying to gain more life or they're well, I don't understand why what, what is the sin there? Uh, for for if I were to eat blood in my meal because I mean I'm, well, I'm just well, trying to understand. Well this the sin is God said don't do it. Yeah. Well Genesis nine is what he's saying. If you eat meat, right. you can't avoid it. And I just would have to think through, like, okay, does that command still apply in light of the new covenant? And I've just not thought it. I've not thought about it enough to give you an answer. Is it possible to read Genesis nine as like the law? Still do. Like, maybe. Maybe. It could. And maybe, maybe the intention is not, you know, that you have to go through these strict kosher laws so much as just like blood itself is not something that we're supposed to consume. I don't know. Well, so I'm reading Genesis 9, says, however, we must not eat meat with its life blood in it. And I could interpret that as like, you must not eat meat. That's like a lot. You know. <clears throat> that could be. I'd, I'd be open to that. This, a, the, 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 yeah. The blood actually, because I saw it, I mean, when they kill the pig, they draw the blood, you know, and they, they, they collect it in a ball. And then after a while, that blood will get, will get like, uh, what do you call Coagulated. it? Hard. Coagulated. Hard, yeah. yeah. And then they will just chop it and include it in the meal. Yeah. So that's why, <laughs> after a while, I said, no, I cannot eat this thing because I saw how it's done and then it's alive from the pig, you know, and then you just chop it and. So after a while, it's just like, to me, it's disgusting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's disgusting too, but that's probably just because it's not typical in our culture. You know? I know, <laughs> it's not typical here, but in uh, the rest of the world, it's typical. I mean, it's but a rare steak. I mean, a juice sauce is dipping in blood. Basically. I don't think that's the blood. That's just the it's juices the blood of the muscles. It's just the juices of the meat cooking out, the fatty stuff. Yeah, and I would, I would be prone to like avoid legalism here right the goal is like guys blood and life right go these these things are connected and so you're eating this animal which is death and you're reveling in the blood i don't know i don't know let's move on only because like <laughs> i just don't know where else to go with this right now and i i don't feel super confident giving an answer uh so let me think on it some more um, and then maybe I can follow up with you on that. Um, yeah, let's, uh, okay, so the theme of the heart continues here in this section, right? And, and the true problem with humanity is not that he lives in a world of filth. Uh, the true problem with, with man is that he is internally filthy, okay? So I, I, you've hopefully heard me say this before, the real danger to any of us is not out there it's in here now that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for a more moral society but you can have a moral society and still have a corrupt heart so uh jesus in here in talking about what defiles people he's talking about he's talking in spiritual terms he's talking about ritual holiness here he's not saying that if you eat something dirty uh that you're in trouble that should be obvious but in his teaching, Jesus is often tearing down prevailing ideas and concepts, okay? So the prevailing idea here is that 
uh, cleanliness is sufficient to make you right in the eyes of God, and the problems that we experience come from the outside in. And I would say that idea is still prevalent. Um, I can give you an example that's kind of hot right now. It's it's not exactly a, a like a one for one correlation, but it's pretty close. The transgender movement says that the problem with me is that my body does not conform to my self-image. The external does not meet the internal. And actually the real problem is that your internal does not conform with the external and you need to reform the, the internal to, to meet the external that God has made. Maybe another one, another even better one would be marriage, right? The problem is my spouse, not me. I just heard this week about a pastor that um, he his his elder team just asked him to step down, but he he came to a friend of mine and said, after twenty years of marriage, I don't think I've ever loved my wife. Oh my gosh! Right, and uh, the problem is he needs to conform his mind to what God's word says about that matter. That he needs to continue to lay down his life for his wife. He made this commitment before God and he is obligated to carry that to completion if he loves Jesus. Um, so we still live in a world where this idea prevails that the problem is out there and not in here. And if I can change the outside, then things I'll feel better on the inside. Does that make sense? Mm. Okay, getting to this little interpretive note that Mark includes here. Oh, you were asking about verse 16. And you know what's funny is I pulled out my net Bible to look at verse 19, and I totally didn't even think about verse 16. So if you're looking at your Bible, it, uh, it probably has verse 17. I'm sorry. Uh, it probably has verse... 15 and then there's no verse 16 and it skips to verse 17 and I don't know why I didn't even um, I didn't even look at this because I had my net Bible out if you don't know what the net Bible is it's a new English translation and what it does is it documents all of the textual and manuscript uh, variants right so you can access it online for free actually it's it's kind of cool but they would give you a good explanation for this I don't know the particulars here. I don't know where this popped up. Uh, the ESV says that some manuscripts add verse 16. If anyone hears to hear, let him hear. Mm -hmm. Usually where you have a verse like this, where scholars have concluded that it doesn't belong in our Bibles, you're dealing with a what's called a marginal note. Okay, so that means at some point, some scribe, as they were copying the text, decided to put a little note in there. And when the next person copied the text, they took the note and put it in to the um, manuscript, okay, in error. And in recreating the more original text and evaluating the manuscripts, we've come to realize there are some verses in here that shouldn't be there because they weren't original. Is that helpful or is that more confusing? Does anybody have questions on that? I just think that the skeptics like to find something like this and try to dismiss all the Bible, but I just want to encourage everyone, there's yeah. no reason to be alarmed. Yeah, 
you have two responses to this actually. You have one, the skeptics who will say, see, look, your Bible has errors. That's why they had to take this verse out. And we would say, no, the Bible does not have errors. And when we even say we believe in inerrancy, we are careful to say in the original autographs, which is what textual criticism does, is it tries to get us back to the original autographs. But I, I, I recently put a little thing together for our women's ministry on this because John 8 has a big one of these that everybody knows, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And... Um, these skeptics will say things like, look, there are like 400,000 errors in the Bible. Well, they're being really manipulative when they say that because they'll take a manuscript that has like an S on the end of a word and, and then they'll take 20 manuscripts that don't and they'll say that's 20 errors. And even with all of those errors, we are like 99.9% confident that what we have in our English Bibles is a recreation of those autographs. So if there's 400,000 errors and you're dealing with 0.01% that are questionable, I think you're talking like 40 or something like that. It's like 40. I, I should double one of them is significant doctrinal change. Yes, and that's the other piece yeah. is when we're even dealing with that, we're dealing with things like how John's name is spelled in two different places in two different ways. So you're talking about not even words that are questionable, but like individual letters. And when you consider that, it is absolutely mind-blowing. There's nothing like the Bible in, in all of the ancient world for its continuity through time. It's, it's really incredible. Um, can I ask, um, so when you say that the original autographs are, are inerrant, you can say that? Yeah. You can say that? Does that mean that even the, the history parts of it that might show up that don't exactly jive with what archaeology might have come up with? Are, are we saying that that is also inerrant? We just may not be understanding what they're talking about? Yeah, so as far as I know, there have been no archaeological discoveries that contradict what the Bible says. Now, there are some archaeologists who are skeptical about places and locations in what they describe and what they know of the ancient world. Or events. There, I think it was a specific event that they're, they're saying never happened. Um, the Exodus. That, you know, that uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is something happened in that time period. Um, maybe we're just not understanding what happened at that's the way I would go, because if God is true, then everything that he says is true. And that, that would include the way history is recorded in the Bible. Um, it's got to be according to fact and what actually happened. But this is the way liberal scholars, scholars have been doing this since the 1700s, basically taking the Bible and saying, we don't think it works this way, and then rewriting it whatever way they, they want. So, and, and just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that... It didn't happen that way. There's lots of things that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just very basic things we don't understand. Something yeah, I've, is. I've read plausible explanations for that. Too. Yeah, the whole read see and all of that. That yeah. The enemy is really trying to discredit what the Bible is saying. Yeah, and frankly, um, we've we've moved beyond that. Like at one point. Uh, academia attacked the Bible, just, just trying to decide or trying to claim that it wasn't true. Now it's gone to the root and just said there's no such thing as truth, right? I mean, the, the, the most modern literary scholarship 
says that the author's intent of a text is irrelevant. The only meaning that you can find in any text is what you put on it, which I, I walked in here and I thought this was fascinating because she's even got this and I can tell by the stuff she has up on the wall that she's probably cutting edge modern thinking when it comes to literary, but she's got sight strong textual evidence. She's asking her students to ask for that, which like that's not modern scholarship. Modern scholarship says the text is irrelevant. The only meaning is what you bring to it, um, which if you do that, if you do that, then no literature ever in history has any meaning at all. It's, it's so subjective. So we move beyond just attacking whether it's true to attacking truth itself. Last week up there was pick one of the creation myths. And I'm assuming she would put the, the Bible based on what I see too. Mm -hmm. The Bible up there is one and then now it's like strong. Yeah, but she's not as hip as she thinks she is if she's asking them to provi provide textual <laughs> evidence. Hopefully there's a faithful young Christian in that room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, good, good questions. And, uh, yeah, I mean, either you believe that the Bible is true or you don't. And if you believe it's true, then you have to take it in its totality. And you have to say when you encounter a problem, the problem is my lack of understanding, not the text. <coughs> Man, and when you read, like, liberal scholarship, when you get into things like Q and J and D, these editors for the Old Testament, it, it just gets so ridiculous. You see these guys tying knots and doing gymnastics in just the most crazy way to explain things. Anyway, and somebody's paying their salaries. It's ridiculous. Okay, so Mark has an interpretive note here uh, where he puts in parentheses at the end of verse 19, and I did look this up. I mean, this is, this is Mark's commentary on what Jesus says here. Uh, and it's original to the text. Mark says, Jesus declared all food clean. Um, we might not make that interpretive choice, but the Holy Spirit leads Mark to add that to the text, and therefore this is inspired by the Spirit. It's true. Okay? So, um... So does he, in effect, change Old Testament law? Is it abrogated? He's, he's seeing what, he's retelling the story as it happened in, in real time, but then he's also going to, to the future and knowing what Jesus said after that and adding it back in for clarification is the way I see it. You know, it's like, I'm just telling you what Jesus said in that moment, but because I know how what he said to Peter later on and stuff, I, I know that in this case, that's what he was doing. Right? It's like yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm trying to think of like maybe a, a broader perspective of this and I don't have space to write but it, it, it really fundamentally comes down to like how do you interpret the Bible and the way that the two major parts work together the old covenant and the new covenant okay do you believe that the new covenant points to and establishes the old covenant or do you believe that the old covenant points to and establishes the new covenant okay so I would say that the Old Covenant is an illustration of something that's much greater that's going to come. So the point of the food laws, it was, it was, it was strictly cleanliness laws for the Jews, that's true. But for us, it was meant to illustrate sin. Okay? And so if you, if you get that, then it's not easy to say, yes, the food laws are gone. Because what, what that illustrated is the need to stay pure and, and undefiled from sin that comes from the heart. And all those, all those laws were meant for that. 
Yeah. So all those laws would point to something. Absolutely. Right. Totally. Okay. Which is why they're no longer in effect today. And I mean, even the thing like don't murder your neighbor, it's meant to point to love your neighbor, right? Um, so even that one, I would say like, yes, absolutely, don't murder your neighbor, but be busy not murdering your neighbor because you're busy loving your neighbor, right? The, the, um, the ten, you know, even the Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. God told us to listen to Jesus. Jesus reinstituted almost all of the Old, all of the Old, the Ten Commandments, except for people that think we're under the Ten Commandments, I like to ask them if they're keeping the Sabbath. Right. You know, because that is one of the Ten Commandments, and I haven't seen one that says, we're supposed to be under the Ten Commandments that's keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, I think that's that's an issue. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And it should and I and I that's a good one. I dealt with this as we were going through Genesis, um, because the Sabbath. I, when, if you go read Hebrews chapters three and four, and it, it brings together God resting on the seventh day, the command of Sabbath, and the rest of entering the promised land, and what you find out is that all of that was meant to point to rest in Christ. So, yeah, I think you can take. I mean, and this is what Hebrews does, is it's taking so many things from the Old Testament and saying, here's how they've been fulfilled in this new covenant. We're under um, the law of Christ. Yeah. And it happens to have nine of the Ten Commandments in there reinstituted. Yep. Set from Christ, but not yep. And that law is love God and love others from a sincere heart. And all those all, all those laws have to be interpreted in that vein, in that view. Yeah. What, what are you doing is what you're doing loving God. Yes. Whatever it is that you're doing. Totally. And, you know, where, where, this, where the rubber really meets the road here is you'll hear people say, well, in the Old Covenant, we have a tripartite law, right? You have the, you have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and then, um, why can I not think of the other one? Moral Civil. law. Sorry. Civil. Civil law. Thank you. And, you know, the moral law continues, but the civil law and the ceremonial law, those go away. Well, show me the place in the New Testament where the Bible says anything similar to that. It doesn't. In fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter, I should know this one, 10 verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Done. And he also goes on to say, though, that when I go to the Gentiles, I live as one without the law, but not without the law of Christ. Right. So he's implying there's a new law that's been set up yeah. in Christ's kingdom. And you still can't commit adultery. You still can't lie. Right. Can't it, but, but Because that would be a violation of loving my neighbor. Right. Um, or, or loving God. Yeah, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And it's also interesting that Jesus goes up on a mountain when he begins to give the Sermon on the Mount. Right? He's, he's a new law giver. Um, yeah. stuff guys uh, okay so the disciples ask for an explanation they don't understand what Jesus is saying here um, which is kind of funny it, I mean it just shows you how hard it is to get outside of your perspective right I mean they're like Jesus what what can you even be talking about that things that go in me don't make me defile like that's how we've always thought about this stuff um, but Jesus warns them about the things that come from within, right? Verse 21. From within, out of the heart of man, 
And he gives what, what uh, we might call a vice list. I like that term, a vice list. We've got others of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, and Galatians 5, 19 through 21. You got another one in Revelation, I think it's chapter 20. That one's a little bit shorter. Is this list all of the things that are corruptible that come out of a man's heart? No, right? This is just a sampling of the buffet from which man commits sin. Um, but Jesus is warning that evil manifests from the heart. Uh, all right. And, and, you know, man, the disciples require this explanation because they just, they don't get it. Um, but you know what's kind of funny is we have something that I think is a little bit similar. The way we think about this is uh, works righteousness. As a prevailing idea that people tend to have. You know, I mean, if you ask the typical person, like, do you think that your goodness is sufficient to get you into life after death. Most people will say yes. That's a prevailing idea. And um, they can't even comprehend the fact that their good deeds are not not even close, right? Nothing. Um, you know, maybe the prevailing idea is this. I am basically good. I just need to avoid the bad influences that are outside of me that might tempt me to do something bad. Right. And Christians have a really unique view at this point. We can end on this note. We believe that humans are fundamentally flawed, fundamentally corrupt in the heart. There's nothing that we can do to change that. We have no power or ability within us to undo our corrupt nature. Now, here's why I'm touching on this. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, I think it was, released a, a survey called The State of Theology. And there's like 21 questions that they ask just average American adults and then evangelicals. And 65% of professing evangelicals believe that people are born innocent. That's heresy. I mean, that's not biblical. You are born in sin. You are born under the wrath of God. You are born an enemy of God. You are born dead, spiritually dead. And 55% of professing evangelicals believe most people are good by nature. That's contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that people are evil by nature. Left to our own devices, we will not get better, we will get worse. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really what Jesus is dealing with, is man's corrupt heart produces... Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's who you are apart from Christ. So if you're ever asked a quiz, are people good by nature? Please say no. No. <laughs> and then revel in the fact that you have been transformed by grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even though we're not good by nature, you do love us and you offer us grace through the work of Christ, through his sacrifice, his merit. We praise you for that. And uh, I pray that in this changed heart that we have, that we would walk in obedience, that we would love you, that we would seek you and pursue you with all of our hearts. 
that we would obey these two great commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, God, would you lead us in that? Would you make us like Christ in that way? And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.